Gentlemen, good morning. Good to be here with you all. Feels like the, the summer is finally starting to move on a little bit. So I'm David Williams. I'm sure most of you men know me. Um, perhaps some of you don't. I am uh, doing a church planting residency here at, uh, at Park Cities. And um, we are really kind of looking forward to doing something here uh, in the city. And so uh, I'm still available to, to meet and for coffee, and I'd, I'd love to kind of get to know you and speak with you about uh, the vision of what we're, what we're wanting to do. And uh, so I'm, I'm, I'm easily accessible. I'm, I'm here quite a bit, and I'd love to meet with you if we haven't already met and shake your hand and kind of get to know you. This morning, we're going to be in 1 Samuel. Um, and so I, I know that your time is precious, so let us get into the word. 1 Samuel 1, 1 to 19. There was a man, a certain man of Remathaim Zophim of the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Elkanah, son of Jeraham, son of Elihu, son of Tohu, son of Zuf, an Ephrathite. He had two wives. The name of the one was Hannah, and the name of the other, Penina. And Penina had children, but Hannah had no children. Now this man used to go up year by year from his city to worship and to sacrifice to the Lord of hosts. At Shiloh, where the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were priests of the Lord. On the day when Elkanah sacrificed, he would give portions to Penina, his wife, and to all her sons and daughters. But to Hannah, he gave a double portion because he loved her, though the Lord had closed her womb. And her rival used to provoke her grievously to irritate her because the Lord had closed her womb. So it went on year by year. As often as she went up to the house of the Lord, she used to provoke her. Therefore, Hannah wept and would not eat. Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Hannah, why do you weep and why do you not eat? Why is your heart sad? Am I not more to you than ten sons? After they had eaten and drunk in Shiloh, Hannah rose. Now Eli the priest was sitting on the seat beside the doorpost of the temple of the Lord. She was deeply distressed and prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. And she vowed a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your servant, remember me and not forget your servant, but will give to your servant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life. No razor shall touch his head. As she continued praying to the Lord, Eli observed her mouth. Hannah was speaking in her heart. Only her lips moved and her voice was not heard. Therefore, Eli took her to be a drunken woman. And Eli said to her, how long will you go on being drunk? Put your wine away from you. But Hannah answered, no, Lord, I am a woman troubled in spirit. I have drunk neither wine nor strong drink. 
but I have been pouring out my soul before the Lord. Do not regard your servant as a worthless woman, for all along I have been speaking out of my great anxiety and vexation. Then Eli answered, Go in peace. The God of Israel grant your petition that you have made to him. Verse 18, And she said, Let your servant find favor in your eyes. Then the woman went her way and ate, and her face was no longer sad. They rose early in the morning and worshipped before the Lord. Then they went back to their house at Ramah. And Elkanah knew his wife, and the Lord remembered her. And in due time, Hannah conceived and bore a son. And she called his name Samuel, for she said, I have asked for him of the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. It is absolutely true, given to us in love for our good. This story picks up at a unique time in the history of Israel. This is at the end of the period of the judges and before Israel had a king. So wedged between this historic transition, we have this account of Samuel's mother, Hannah, his father, Elkanah, and his father's wife, Panina. What we read is a contention between the two wives, jockeying for approval, bitter competition. But the question begs to be asked, why is this here? We don't read of parents of any other Old Testament prophets anywhere. So what was so unique about this event that it's included in the biblical narrative? In this less than ideal dynamic, we're going to learn how the Lord uses affliction, difficulty, and leanness of soul to get us out of ourselves and bring us to the place where we can be used by the Lord for his purposes. Now, in this passage, we are going to discuss infertility. I don't want to belittle this because there may be many perhaps even among us who have had difficulty conceiving. I, myself, through God's providence, never fathered any children. It's nothing to be ashamed or embarrassed about. It's just that the Lord, in his eternal wisdom has elected that those of us without children are just fruitful in other ways. In this sermon, we're going to examine this passage under three headings. The predicament, verses 1 through 8. The purpose, verses 9 to 18. And the payoff, verses 19 and 20. This leads us to our first heading, the predicament. There was a certain man of Ramathaim Zophim of the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Elkanah, the son of Jeraham, the son of Elihu, the son of Tohu, 
son of Zuf, an Ephrathite. He had two wives. The name of the one was Hannah and the name of the other Penina. And Penina had children, but Hannah had no children. Now this man used to go up year by year from his city to worship and to sacrifice to the Lord of hosts at Shiloh. The two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were priests of the Lord. On the day when Elkanah sacrificed, he would give portions to Penina, his wife, and to all her sons and daughters. But to Hannah he gave a double portion because he loved her, though the Lord had closed her womb. And her rival used to provoke her grievously to irritate her because the Lord had closed her womb. So it went on year by year. As often as she went up to the house of the Lord, she used to provoke her. Therefore Hannah wept and would not eat. And Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Why do you weep? Why do you not eat? Why is your heart sad? Am I not more to you than ten sons? Here we read of a man of the Levitical order, Elkanah. Along with, he, along with uh, his two wives, he went up to sacrifice at Shiloh. Now, this is well before the temple in Jerusalem was built. And this was a time of great apostasy in Israel. And in the midst of this, what the opening verses tell us is that Elkanah was a devout and an honorable man. Yet though he was devout and honorable, he had a divided family. He had two wives. Now it doesn't take a genius to understand that having more than one wife is a bad idea. In the Bible, it's always a problem. Everywhere we read of polygamy in the Bible, it's never written of positively. Never has a good outcome. Matthew Henry writes that men who marry more than one wife are beaten with rods of their own making. Though the Lord allowed it early on, by the time we get to Malachi, covenantal monogamy becomes explicit. As a small people whose continuation and offices were contingent upon offspring, polygamy was tolerated. There were no seminaries one could attend in order to become a Levite. You had to be born into a Levitical family. And perhaps what we read of Elkanah and his two wives would best be understood through the lens of Jacob, Leah, and Rachel. One married, the first one married, rather, couldn't have children. So a second was married to provide children that the first could not. We read that as Elkanah went to Shiloh to offer sacrifices, he would give portions to his family. Now, in making peace offerings, the offerer would receive back the greater part of what they had offered. We read of this in Leviticus 33. And it was out of this that Elkanah would give portions to all the members of his family. 
But the term translated worthy portions signified a larger portion. This was given to the most distinguished members of the family. But there was jealousy between the two wives. The one wife was able to have children. And this gave her a place of honor because of her children. The other, Hannah, was held in a higher esteem even though she could not bear children. The word says that Penina would provoke her and provoke her grievously. She represented her infertility as a punishment from the Lord. Not being able to bear children was seen as a reproach and even as divine chastisement among women at the time. The passage reads that Hannah was so troubled by her inability to conceive that she couldn't even eat. All she could do was cry. Hannah's barrenness was a source of great pain for herself and oddly a source of great joy for Penina. For Penina... Her ability to conceive was her vindication and validation as a woman. Pastor Dale Ralph Davis, in his volume, First Samuel, Looking on the Heart, writes, Hannah is not the first barren woman noted in Scripture. Barren women seem to be God's instruments in raising up key figures in the history of redemption, whether the promised seed, Isaac, the father of Israel, Jacob, saviors or preservers of Israel, Joseph, Samson, Samuel, or the forerunner of the great king, John the Baptist. Hannah, therefore, shares in a fellowship of barrenness. And it is frequently in this fellowship that new chapters in Yahweh's history with his people begin. It begins with nothing. God's tendency is to make our total inability his starting point. Our hopelessness and our helplessness are no barrier to his work. Indeed, our utter incapacity is often the prop he delights to use for his next act. This matter goes beyond the particular situations of biblical barren women. We are facing one of the principles of Yahweh's modus operandi when his people are without strength, without resources, without hope, without human gimmicks. Then he loves to stretch forth his hand from heaven. Friends, have you ever been in the place where Hannah was? Painted into a corner? No light to be found? In a predicament where there seemed to be nothing but unending pain and anguish? Everything around you presents no good options. There's no clear path forward, no apparent resolution. You see, friends, the predicament Hannah was facing was not her infertility. Hannah's barrenness had come from the Lord. The scriptures make it a point to say it twice. You know what else came from the Lord? The ridicule of Penina. You see, friends, God has supernaturally ensured that we all have our own personal paninas in our lives. Those whose sole purpose is to take occasion 
of God's sanctifying purposes in our lives and try to make us feel like the Lord is actually against us. 17th century Lutheran theologian Daniel Kramer writes, Although God never forgets his own, yet he often acts as if a stranger. The true predicament Hannah faced and that which we face, which unites us to the text, is that we have to grasp that whatever that unyielding, painful situation in our lives that is beyond our control has come from the Lord. And it's in our lives for a purpose. We must learn to see the hand of God operating beyond our immediate circumstances. This brings us to our second heading, the purpose. Verse 9, after they had eaten and drunk in Shiloh, Hannah rose. Now Eli the priest was sitting on the seat beside the doorpost of the temple of the Lord. She was deeply distressed and prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. And She vowed a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your servant, remember me and not forget your servant, but will give to your servant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life and no razor shall touch his head. As she continued praying before the Lord, Eli observed her mouth. Hannah was speaking in her heart, only her lips moved and her voice was not heard. Therefore, Eli took her to be a drunken woman and Eli said to her, How long will you go on being drunk? Put your wine away from you. But Hannah answered, No, my Lord, I am a woman troubled in spirit. I have drunk neither wine nor strong drink, but I have been pouring out my soul before the Lord. Do not regard your servant as a worthless woman, for all along I have been speaking out of my great anxiety and vexation. Then Eli answered, Go in peace. The God of Israel grant your petition that you have made to him. And she said, Let your servant find favor in your eyes. Then the woman went her way and was no longer sad. Here we read where the pain had become too great. The scripture says that her barrenness as well as the ridicule she had received from Penina had gone on for years. She goes into the temple as the King James reads in bitterness of soul and it is there that she pours her soul out to the Lord. She had fled Penina's cruel mockery she had found no solace in the arms of her husband, Elkanah. Even though he was well-meaning, his sympathy was inadequate. Eli, seeing her, reviles her for drunkenness. And it is here, cast before the altar, the mercies of the Lord, she makes her plea to God. She will offer back to the Lord what he grants to her. I think Chrysostom frames it well when he writes, 
when standing to pray, she did not remember her adversary, did not speak of her revilings, did not say, avenge me of this vile and wicked woman as many women do. But not often remembering those reproaches, she prayed only for things profitable to herself. This do thou also, O man. Do not pray against thy enemy, but beseech God to put an end to thy despondency, to quench thy grief. By so doing, this woman derived the greatest benefits from her enemy, for her enemy contributed to the bearing of the child. And how? I will tell. When she reproached her and made her distress greater, from the distress her prayer became more intense. The prayer drew God's favor and made him consent. And so Samuel was born. So then if we be watchful, not only will our enemies be unable to do us hurt, but they will even bring us to the greatest benefits, making us more zealous towards everything. See, friends, this is where all this was headed. What the Lord had been working out in Hannah was a death. A death to her own ambition. A death to her own agenda. A death to her selfish desire for vindication. See, there is a motif of death and resurrection that runs throughout the scripture. And it echoes here. There was a purpose that the Lord had for Hannah, but he could not use her the way she was. We see here in her prayer that it wasn't about her anymore. It was about the glory of God. The Lord does not merely allow, but he directs sustained seasons of bitterness in our lives because like Hannah, it drives us to himself. David writes of this in the Psalms. Before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I keep your word. Psalm 119.67. In my distress, I cried to the Lord, and he heard me. Psalm 120, verse 1. I called to the Lord in my distress, and I cried to God for help. From his temple, he heard my voice, and my cry to him reached his ears. Psalm 18 and 6. The Lord superintended these events with Hannah for the purpose of driving her to himself. We see that the Lord not only ordained her barrenness when we look at it through this lens, but he ordained the ridicule that she had to endure from her rival. See, friends, these were the instruments of her death. This was the cross she had to bear. There was a special and unique purpose that God had for Hannah, and it required a greater level of sanctification, holiness, selflessness. She wasn't going to just give birth to a child, but to a prophet who would speak the word of God to the Lord's people. In her anguish and desire for validation as a woman, she wanted a child because that child would have been the affirmation of her worth and value as a woman. Her sense of worth and importance, the whole of who she was and how she saw herself was reduced down to being able to bear a child. 
It was this sense of worth and value directly tied to her ability to reproduce that she had to die to. The reason why the Lord did not allow her to conceive was because had she done so as she was, that child would have been hers and not the Lord's. The Lord and what he was wanting to use her for had to get her out of herself. Hannah's focus was too low. She was aspiring to the status quo. She just wanted to be a mom. That's not a bad thing. But the Lord was wanting to do something unique and special in her life. She was going to bear a prophet. The Lord uses pain and difficulty to get us out of ourselves. Situations that will not easily resolve. That seem to needlessly go on forever with no end in sight. Unfulfilled desires that seem if we just had this one thing right in our life. Our lives would be great. Friends, death must be experienced. Of course, there is the eschatological death we undergo when being regenerated by the Holy Spirit, but there is also a death that we must walk out in our daily lives. Christ spoke of this as recorded by Matthew when he writes, if anyone comes to me, if anyone wants to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. The cross is an instrument of death. The Lord has purposed the cross as the instrument of death in the lives of his own. I cannot say what the cross is that you have to bear. I can say that it has been ordained by God to put to death that which is in you, which is beyond redemption that he cannot use. This leads to our third heading, the payoff. Verse 19, they rose early in the morning and worshiped before the Lord. Then they went back to their house at Ramah and Elkanah knew Hannah, his wife, and the Lord remembered her. And in due time, Hannah conceived and bore a son and she called his name Samuel for she said, I've asked for him from the Lord. That's verse 20. I got, the head is 1 Samuel 1, 1 to 19, and I just read 20 verses. I'm supposed to be a professional at this, y'all. We see what this narrative has been working towards. Hannah had to die to herself so that the life of God would be made manifested through her. Look with me in verse 19. They rose early in the morning and worshipped before the Lord. Now this is worlds apart from what we read earlier. Earlier, Hannah was all about anguish, distress, bitterness. But you see, at this point, it's not about Penina anymore. 
It's not about her own barrenness. She's focused on the Lord. Her temporal circumstance has suddenly become completely irrelevant. And this as she is offering praise and worship to the Father. In verse 20, we read where the Lord remembered her. Now, it wasn't that the Lord had forgotten Hannah and needed to be reminded. When words that we use relating to people are used of God, such as the Lord remembered, the Lord forgot, the Lord got angry, that's for literary effect. God had Hannah in mind all along, and he had her in mind for something special. He just had to get her to the point where she was out of herself. And it wasn't about her anymore. You see, friends, prayer, worship are a means of grace whereby we are drawn into the very presence of the Lord. Our prayer and our worship does not change God. It changes us. It conforms us to his will. It does not conform him to our will. Verse 21 says that Hannah conceived in due time. Not in her time, but in the Lord's time. You see, it wasn't when Hannah was motivated by a selfish need for affirmation that she conceived. Because if she had, she never would have dedicated Samuel to the Lord. What the Lord was wanting to birth in her was not something that she could claim as her own, but something that the Lord would claim as his own. A child not for Hannah's glory, but for the Lord's. So friends, let us quickly draw a contrast between Penina and Hannah. Pahina, whose name is loosely translated a ruby or a pearl, is telling all in itself. The value is in the natural, or in this sense, the value was in her natural ability to produce children. Hannah is the Hebrew word for grace. And though the grace of God was upon her, it could not be empirically observed. One could not look with the natural eye and see the grace of God on Hannah. In fact, if you looked through the eyes, you could miss it altogether. Penina appeared to be the one who had the grace of God upon her because she bore children. But that was simply the natural operation of procreative activity. And by God's providence, she conceived healthy children. The work of God for Hannah was not natural, but it was rather supernatural. And it was not glamorous. It was hard work. It cut to the very core of who she thought she was. Cut through her own sense of self-worth as the work of the Lord and someone always does. It was a lonely place. There was no human aid for Hannah. This is a place where it's just you and the Lord. You don't expect people to understand it. Even Eli 
falsely accused Hannah. Drunkenness. Not being aware of where she was with the Lord. I think often we are enamored with the Penina model. We're enamored with pedigree and natural ability. We love to see it in ministry as if someone through their own ability actually has something to bring to the table. It's easy to look at others' perceived success and want to imitate them as opposed to seeking the Lord for what he wants to do with us. It's really hard for the Lord to bless us when all we aspire to is the status quo. The reality is that when we aspire to what we see around us, we've set our sights too low just like Hannah. If all we aspire to is the status quo, then we preclude the Lord doing something unique and distinctive in our lives and through us. We tend to make determinations of value based upon performance and objective measures of what we consider to be productive. This is usually done by comparing ourselves to someone else. The reality is that how we determine value, how the Lord determines value, not the same. In fact, it is our own natural proclivity towards quantifying merit, importance, or goodness based upon performance where our value and worth is based upon what we can do in the natural. This is exactly what we must die to. Judging ours or someone else's value based upon what we or they can do may be how the natural man operates. Maybe how the corporate world works. That's not how the Lord works. The Lord works within us a death to bring about the end of carnal selfish ambitions. Particularly those that hide in the church. We must embrace our own crosses, whatever that may be, because it has been ordained by the Lord as a means to mortify our sense of self, ambitions, and aspirations. The Lord is setting before us the opportunity to have an eternal kingdom impact, to die to ourselves, to allow the expression of Christ be fully manifested in our lives. And none of this is possible in our own ability. Yet it is easy not to grasp this and just live our lives according to our own natural volition, just like Penina. In 1984, Nike was struggling. After growing fast for a decade, the sneaker company had hit a speed bump reporting its first quarterly loss. That summer, Carl Lewis won four gold medals at the Los Angeles Summer Olympics while wearing a pair of Nike shoes. But even that stroke of good fortune failed to boost sales. Reebok's dominance based on its successful line of women's jogging shoes appeared secure. Enter Michael Jordan a promising rookie playing for the Chicago Bulls. Nike took a gamble and convinced Jordan to sign on despite his admitted preference for Adidas sneakers. 
The first run of Air Jordans went on sale the next year, retailing for the eye-popping price of $65. Within two months, sales hit $70 million. These, Jays, these days, Air Jordans are still the basketball market leader, generating over $2 billion per year in revenues. Reebok, which sold a popular line of sneakers for joggers at the time the Air Jordans debuted, was never able to recover. While Nike went on to add superstars like Andre Agassi and Tiger Woods to its portfolio of brand ambassadors, Reebok fizzled. In 2005, Adidas acquired Reebok for $3.8 billion, a fitting end to a war waged via proxy. Imagine with me, where would Nike be today if back in 1984 they had decided they were going to compete with Reebok for the women's jogging shoe market? In conclusion, let me summarize what we've seen in this passage. First, we've seen two models. The Panina model, which gauges their value based upon what they can produce, and the Hanna model, which embraces our, our inadequacy and learns through the pain to commit it all on the altar of God. The model that embraces the death process so that the life of God can be made manifest. We've seen how carnal assessments of success are untrustworthy. Seeing that God is not interested in what we can do, but what he can do through us. And we've seen the folly of wanting to imitate others. We've seen churches do this. Such and such a program, such and such worship style, such and such preaching series was a big deal at so and so church and we ought to do that here too. Ultimately, what we've read and what we see in this passage is how the Lord works to bring about our own death so that we can be fully utilized by him for his purposes. Let's pray. Father, we give glory and honor to you. We thank you for your word. We thank you that it's written for our good. We thank you for what we read in Hannah. I pray that it would, deep, that it would take deep root, that it would yield much fruit, that we would embrace that thing in our lives that you have put there for our own death. May we not shun it. May the dross be removed from off the silver and the vessel of the finer come forth. We thank you, Lord, that you're still in the business of raising the dead. That the power and the glory might be of you and not of us. In Christ's name, amen.